All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it is my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, we are jamming with Jeff, who has created the concept for Wonderless, a series of large-scale events combining yoga and wellness with the arts. Wonderless has become a global wellness platform with 65 events in 20 countries, and he now serves as chairman. He founded Commune Media, an online learning platform for personal and societal well-being, hosts the Commune podcast, interviewing a wide variety of guests from Deepak Chopra and Marianne Williamson to Brandon Burchard and Russell Brand. And he's part of the Super Soul 100. I didn't know this one. This is super cool, Jeff. A group of 100 top entrepreneurs handpicked by Oprah Winfrey. Lives in Los Angeles with his wife, three daughters, and is it still four chickens? Uh, There's about a dozen chickens. The chickens have grown in population. Um, as part of my estrogen footprint, is what I call it. I'm I live in a sea of women, and so yes, I'm a, amazing. I'm a... Well, welcome, Jeff, to the show. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you. Um, we've had a few conversations over the last uh, year and a bit or so, and uh, I've been fully immersed uh, in the Commune platform. It's just such beautiful content in there. I mean, I'm biased because I obviously am very interested in the space, but it's nice to have everything kind of in one place. And it's just, um, it's like an explosion of knowledge and content and, and uh, a curiosity builder, I would say, in so many, just so many different facets of life. So I'm excited to, to learn a little bit of how all of that started for you, unpack your story and uh, get into what you're working now. But the first question everyone gets is, is really just, who are you? Who is Jeff? I, the person in front of me right now, how would you define uh, some of your values and char- characteristics? Yeah, well, I could give you the esoteric answer. I'm a, a packet of animated information connecting spontaneously moment to moment. Um, <laughs> I love that. But that's uh, there's nothing individualized about that. Everybody takes part in that. Um, you know, I'm really just in this particular moment, um, having a really just expansive and dynamic time in my own life for many of the reasons that you just outlined, um, you know, immersing myself in commune and, um, this experiment, um, puts me in relationship with many of the most brilliant minds uh, of our time, thought leaders, teachers, authors, doctors. And, um, and it's my uh, responsibility <laughs> to, uh, to talk to them and interview them and create courses and content with them um, in order to serve kind of humanity's well-being. But along the way, uh, I read, I research, I am rigorously excavating topics from regenerative farming to metabolic health to Buddhism to Taoism and across the board uh, on, on a daily basis. Um, in fact, I'm kind of jumping from topics, reading books, listening to podcasts, having deep, uh, present conversations and then, you know, trying to synthesize all of that into my own you know, personal 
voice and philosophy on life. And uh, it is a unique and incredibly fortunate opportunity to be able to be at the fulcrum of a lot of these ideas and, and thoughts and um, and try to make some sense out of them. So that's kind of where I am really day to day. I mean, I'm happy to give you kind of a more biographical history of, of kind of how I came to this place, uh, if that's um, helpful. Well, Jeff, I, I would be curious to just understand it. And I don't know if you've thought about this before. So if you haven't, just kind of what comes up top of mind. But the Jeff of today versus five, six years ago, what would you like? What are some of the I guess, how have you because we all evolve, but how have you evolved from from that place? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or, you know, it, are there are there differences if, if we were recording, you know, five, six years ago? Um, I guess what would be the main characteristics to be like, you know what, uh, this this is what shifted, right? Because you're doing very different work. Well, I shouldn't say very different work. You were doing different work. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's all kind of within or under the overarching aegis of well-being and wellness. Yeah. But I can't say that I was particularly well five or six years ago. And, um, of course, there's nothing stable or reliable of what it's like to be me right now either. But uh, <laughs> overall, the system and the pattern of what it's like to be Jeff is pretty damn well right now. Yeah. Uh, for a whole variety of different reasons. And, uh, and the small window of free will that I can exercise day to day, I do my best to do that in order to create, um, you know, eudaimonia, which is a Greek concept for human flourishing or well-being. And so I, I feel like I'm inhabiting that space right now, um, how I'm eating, how I'm moving, how I'm thinking, how I'm relating to people um, is fostering uh, that kind of well-being right now mm -hmm. that wasn't true five or six years ago and i would say that if i were to make a kind of overarching comment about my life five or six years ago i was much more connected to product over process okay right now i'm very very connected to process um and, and there's a lot of physical uh philosophical underpinnings to why that's true um but I would characterize my life five or six years ago as CEO of Wanderlust as really just very much focused on like top line growth and at least in a business context yeah. and, um, and the, um, and, and high productivity and operational efficiency and, you know, like 12 months forward and 24 month projections and, you know, all of these kind of manifestations that were somehow out there and uh, very focused on out there external agents to kind of satisfy mm -hmm. my own uh, discontents or my own search for happiness. And, Interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and just, you know, that really, because I was so growth oriented, um, that I spoke a particular kind of language, the symbols that I used to reflect my thoughts, um, would kind of define the conversations in the community that I would have. So I was having, you know, I, I met all sorts of incredible people, but most of my life at that juncture was dominated by like corporate partnerships. So then I would be sitting in boardrooms having conversations about productivity and growth and like, yeah, we can access 
the active millennial female through this kind of partnership or, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. and we're the gatekeepers for the blah, 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 you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I, the kinds of things, and I, and I don't demean that because it was all in service of really trying to bring, you know, modalities to as many people as possible ideas of uh, or modalities and tools such as mindfulness and meditation and yoga and sustainability practices but uh, i think i got you know a little bit lost in um kind of in in, in the product of it all and um and now i'm just much more focused on process and um and really, when you come to terms with the idea that all we have is the eternal now, um, is that, that all we can do is bring our attention to this present moment such that we are living in alignment with our highest principles. And what will happen will happen. And that mm -hmm. will happen again in the present. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and it is a very liberating way to live, Mark, because, um, and I'm not saying plans aren't necessary. It's like we planned to meet at nine o'clock Pacific time to have this particular conversation. And we created that social institution known as time, <laughs> which helps <laughs> us, you know, cooperate and live in coherence and, you know, humanity certainly needs a lot of that. But right now, I'm just here with you 100%. Yeah. And that is a, an anomaly in terms of how most of us live our lives. And it's actually one of the great knock-on impacts of being a podcast host, as you know, is that for 60 to 90 minutes at a time, we are completely undistracted. And we yeah. are living in a world where distraction is just the norm and For sure. um, and we can't uh, muster what I call long wave thinking and and long wave thinking is where a lot of really productive and insightful ideas are produced um, and so you know the more that I think we can all focus on being completely here now uh, I think the, the more human flourishing we will inhabit. And that's where I'm really trying to live. And that's a, a very big shift from where I was six years ago. Well, I feel it. And, and I, I obviously very much resonate uh, as, a, as a podcast host that, you know, the, some of the best conversations I've noticed are always linked to the level of presence, right? Even, mm -hmm. even if I think back probably a couple of years ago now where, I would have had, and I'm, th this is my style. I everyone has their their own, but I, I learned this from you have the book uh, from Cal Fussman, first profile in personal Socrates, and you know I did the prep for this conversation and listed a ton of different questions, but I don't have those questions in front of me. Mm. I have you in front of me, and that you know two years ago would have been I would have been like this, kind of staring at another screen, and and not that I wasn't listening, obviously, but I wasn't as present as you know, I, I'd like to think that I, that I am um, right now and, and with you, which I've even noticed that the benefits of and just feel alive and, and you, and I think the other people feel that on the other side as well, right? When you're exchanging uh, information, I have to share something with you because I, I was 
very excited to ask you that last question and 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 here's why and i don't think this to your point we it, we're all in a journey we're all going through like you, you know you five six years ago got you to where you're at today and there was a, a purpose and a, and a mission to it but when i was doing the research i stumbled across an episode a podcast episode you did with lewis house mm. and <laughs> i i didn't look at any of the dates or anything i just I, it popped up you know and i turned it on and i didn't recognize you and mm. I had to the point where I had to look as this, I'm like, is this Jeff? Because you, and, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, but you were faster. Mm. Like you could, it, it sounded like you were, you know, like the, the show was sped up, which is so linked to what you, everything you just shared. It, it seemed like you were operating just faster. Yeah, that might be Lewis uh, speeding up the podcast in post-production. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's not. You just debunked no, my whole thing. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I, I, it's funny because I remember that time I, I was running Wanderlust with my partner, Sean, and we had a uh, an office, a big, sprawling, kind of warehousey office in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. But it was an open floor plan. And so there were no private offices and I didn't know who Lewis was at all. And, but he asked me to be on the podcast. I was like, okay, sure. This is kind of before podcasts were kind of yeah. as ubiquitous as they are now. Well, he was like, and, that was like episode 100 and something. I think he's at a thousand plus at this point. Right. So it, it yeah. was early. It was early. And I remember doing it in a tiny closet because that was the only <laughs> place I could find that had any kind of uh, sound reinforcement. And, um, yeah, you know, I do actually have a pretty good memory of that, although I don't remember anything that I said, uh, but I, I do m remember the actual, um, yeah. podcast itself. And, uh, but I remember being very impressed, um, with Lewis at that time. He had, he had done some good research, uh, and asked me some good questions. Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, certainly after, uh, that was kind of late in Wanderlust's uh, gestation. And, you know, I had a lot of, I guess, kind of like go-to tropes and lines and stories that sure, I sure. got very used to telling about Wanderlust, as anybody would. Yeah. And, um, and I suppose now, you know, yeah, of course, there are ideas that I'm thinking about and developing and turns of phrase that I gravitate to. And then I come back to, they kind of are my reservoir of, of, um, or my repository of, of quotes and aphorisms and adages, but try to be kind of, as you say, a little bit more off script and, and sure. And, and in the moment. And I think, you know, one of the dangers of that is, especially in our line of work, um, is that you're bound to step in your own or someone else's bucket of shit if, uh, <laughs> if you are off script for two hours at a time. Yeah. And, you know, this is a very dangerous moment, you know, in culture, obviously with uh, people being held to account in some ways and sometimes for very... Um, legitimate reasons and then other times not. And I think mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're going through this very, um, you know, liminal moment in terms of information and attention and how we navigate that because so many of us have become disenchanted with mainstream media 
that, you know, we're looking kind of to independent sources, you know, like Joe Rogan. You know, I, I was just going to say, for but, anyone listening, you should go, yeah. go, I'll link to, uh, obviously your social channels, but you, you, you posted a really nice, I think, perspective on what was happening with, uh, with Joe Rogan. And it, 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 I know for me, it made me kind of push my chair back and think, which is always a sign of, yes, anyone that can do that is, uh, makes me feel good. And I think, uh, we stopped thinking in, in a lot, you know, many capacities really, especially over the last few years. So I, yeah, I appreciated I mean, that. Yeah. It's like, you know, Mark, I didn't go to journalism school. I don't think you did either. Um, no. certainly Joe didn't. Um, so, you know, we weren't trained in journalistic codes of ethics or, you know, how to, um, you know, multiple source or fact check or issue core agendum. In fact, I don't think most podcast hosts know what that word means, but it's essentially <laughs> issuing corrections when you make a mistake. And, you know, these are just core principles in journalism. And, yeah. you know, for all their warts, you know, institutions like the New York Times or the New Yorker or the National Review or NPR, you know, outlets that I have tremendous respect for, um, they are operating mostly under those principles. And uh, and even though, you know, mainstream media can be somewhat of an echo chamber and the model itself is broken, the ad revenue media model is not a model that yeah. functions, yeah. Uh, particularly in the attention economy where, you know, you take a particular event that gives something an air of plausibility, you wrap it in hyperbole, um, kind of uh, lace an editorial bias over the top of it and deploy it in a way to maximize human negativity bias for the purposes of fear or outrage or really to increase clicks and views to sell ads, you know? And, um, and that's, just, uh, that's just not a good way to disseminate information or to create, um, you know, uh, liberal, the, the substrate for liberal democracy, which is so reliant on, you know, free and public discourse. Um, so, you know, and at the same time, there are the, the media model is very, very different than the actual journalists who are working at a lot of these outlets, who many of whom really, really care and aren't making a ton of money. And they're out there on the front lines doing really important work to hold systems um, to account. And, mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I think it's like a, it's a time where we've lost uh, the appreciation for that nuance. Um, and so many of us have run towards kind of independent uh, sources of content. And I think that that's fantastic. Um, but, you know, there's some downsides there, too. And I think, you know, we've experienced many of those because, you know, kind of influencers or whatever, podcasters or Substakistan or whatever, doesn't, you know, doesn't often, doesn't always work with the same kind of rigor and as as you'd hope and that you know they're also um susceptible to kind of dopamine foraging and um what i call like essentially kind of shock journalism where you know you're essentially just like trying to you know um optimize a, a title 
on a YouTube video or on an Instagram post yeah. in order to essentially get the most likes and views and things like that. So, you know, this is a, this is a tricky, tricky time to navigate because, you know, like I've, I've, I really believe that human cooperation and human coherence and moving towards the middle is, has been really the, um, the provenance of great achievement, human achievement over time. And, uh, you know, our, our greatest achievements have been predicated on this ability to cooperate and cohere around an intersubjective understanding of reality. And we've really lost a lot of that, you know, mm -hmm. facts, you know, all, with all, what alternative facts or whatever. So this is a, well, we play in the extreme thing. Yeah. It's, it's Absolutely. interesting because it's, I mean, it's, it's a nice segue to, to a topic that I really wanted to uh, speak about with you because I think individually, this is where we, we almost have an accountability to our, to ourselves to be able to bring our mind to a certain place or a certain mm -hmm. function that we can pause the autopilot and, and not just go straight down Joe Rogan approach or not just go straight down New York times. And to your point, you know, try to balance the pendulum a little bit, ask some questions and, and we, you know, individually can also come to our own opinions and conclusions and so forth. But that, that pause and thought is what I notice, and, and I'm guilty of it as well. I mean, I'm thankfully I'm surrounded with these practices to help. And I'd say that, you know, uh, the pause shows up probably more often for me than it, than it would have been, you know, 10 years ago or so. But I feel like that's where something like, uh, stoicism and stoic, uh, philosophy and just like perspective shifts, I'd say in general, uh, could be really helpful as a tool, especially with the theme of this show of mental fitness to really just calm the mind a little bit and ask some questions and think and, and so forth. So I, I'd love to get your, your perspective on that topic and, and also just see how the topic of stoicism entered your life or, or, or what was it that brought it in? And then we can talk about some of your latest work around it. Yeah, that was a really crafty bridge there. Um, because I, I do tie um, a lot of my uh, thoughts and practices uh, in connection to stoicism with um, how I actually relate with the media landscape. Um, so that was, oh, interesting. Well, that okay. was well done. Um, like for example, um, you know, so this is a very central tenet to stoicism is that stoicism posits that, um, our response to an event is often hyper emotional, not because of the event itself, but because of our judgment of it. Mm. Okay. So we have internal biases that when an event happens and that could be something that you see on the news or a cop car streaming, you know, cruising by you at 120 miles an hour or whatever. And we will have an emotional reaction to that particular event that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the event itself or any rigorous study of the event, but it's just a snap reaction to our judgment 
or our pre-existing bias. So um, this is very central to Stoicism. And, um, and I, I think, you know, you talk about finding the space. Of course, Viktor Frankl was a Stoic. Um, and, you know, he, he talks about the space between stimulus and, and response being our liberation and our freedom. And, um, and that, he, he, that is derived directly from Stoicism. Um, so Stoicism really has us, uh, you know, examine our perspectives in such a way that we become aware of our biases, we become aware of our emotional reactions to things, and uh, and we take a moment. We find we train ourselves to make what would otherwise be conscious behavior subconscious, and we find space as part of de facto subconscious behavior between events and any emotional reaction that we might have to them such that we can actually, you know, rigorously examine the nature of that event itself. And so, you know, you may have like, we can ground this in sort of a more specific example, but like, you know, you may have a prejudice against, uh, the police, for example, Mm -hmm. and that might be anchored in some great legitimacy, you know? Um, but if you're, you know, late to pick up your daughter from school, you know, and a police car or three, you know, come cruising by you and you have to pull over to the side of the road and, you know, uh, there's a traffic jam and you become aggravated and you have this emotional response and you're like, you know, screw the police. Like, you know, what are they doing there? You know, flexing their muscles and like moving, you know, and they're using, leveraging their power. Yeah. Right. And all of a sudden you're in that place of what I call amygdala hijack. You're angry, you're outraged. And what happens when you're in that place? Okay. Well, there is actually a physiological reaction associated with that. It's, you know, most famously associated with fight or flight, but you know, Mm -hmm. the, the flexing, of the sympathetic nervous system where, you know, you get a, a burst of cortisol and epinephrine and adrenaline and your heart rate goes up and your respiratory rate goes up and your blood goes to your muscles and all these things that were very useful on the Serengeti, <laughs> but not necessarily of great utility when you're sitting in your car at the side of the road. And then what do you do? Well, maybe you roll down your window and you say something insane or obscene or you honk or you or nothing or maybe you're just taken off your game and uh and all of a sudden you're sort of in this cortisol infused state where you know the ability to make rational and reasonable and honestly kind and compassionate decisions which are associated with the prefrontal cortex are eclipsed so there's mm-hmm. real physio- physiological girding in what's going on here, you know? Um, not only that, there's also downstream impacts because if you're watching the news, essentially like getting moving over to the side of the road because cops are going by is essentially akin to like watching the news and being triggered or whatever. And you're watching that 24-7 and you're in a state of constant chronic cortisol drip what yeah. else is that doing? Well, it's actually on a physiological basis. It's um, it's spiking your blood glucose levels. 
It's creating dysbiosis in your gut. It's creating downstream effects. If you really want to pull that thread all the way through, I think, you know, this, our um, predilection to having these snap judgments that then become kind of emotional overload contribute to chronic disease. I agree. If, if we're living there all the time. And I think if you look, you know, kind of at the efflorescence of social media culture in combination with 24 seven news, you know, what we're, many of us are living in a state of constant amygdala hijack cortisol infusion. And then, you know, you look in, at the correlation there between like, you know, gut dysbiosis and intestinal permeability that leads to chronic inflammation, which is the substrate, you know, for every single chronic disease and autoimmune disease. And so, you know, you're looking at like, you know, rates of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and IBS. And, and, and yeah, of course, there's other inputs that contribute to that. But one of them is the uh, over-emotional response that are due to judgments of particular events. And that is completely within our own agency to change. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. it's like, so, you know, you, you know, this is, this actually goes, dovetails right into another element of stoicism because, you know, stoicism there's a great quote from Marcus Aurelius. I think it's like, stop arguing what a man, a good man should be, be one. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. I remember that one. Hello everyone. I first wanted to say thanks for being here and I hope you're enjoying the show. I wanted to let you know if you're interested, I just launched the better questions newsletter designed to provide you with a consistent 15 minute opportunity to pause and think because a pause leads to clarity and operating with intention where we all win and thrive. The newsletter is short, simple, and practical, providing you with three quality reflective prompts and mental fitness twice a month. But as always, I'll adjust the frequency based on your feedback. Never forget, at any point, you are always one question away from a completely different life or outcome. You can sign up over at BehindTheHuman.com, which will also give you a free preview of my debut book, Personal Socrates. BehindTheHuman.com. Now back to the show. You know, stoicism actually had a lot of um, impact on all sorts of different kinds of traditions, including kind of modern Christianity. And um, there's a famous um, theologian, Reinhold Niebuhr, who has, you know, the serenity prayer, who is, which is completely focused on, on determining what things in your life you can control and what things you cannot and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. And so it, what we seem to have some sort of agency over is where we put our attention moment to moment. You know, there's not a lot of other free will and we could have a whole long conversation about free will, but at least as a product of my own direct experience, I seem to have some agency of where I can put my attention moment to moment. How and do you train I, that agency, Jeff? Yeah. I think that's the big one, right? Mm. Yeah. I, well, I mean, there certainly are, you know, modalities. I think meditation is obviously a 
great one yeah. where, and I'll just kind of pull on that a tiny bit because I don't want it to be confused with some sort of crystal laden puja with just the right frankincense, you know, burning <laughs> and, and, and it's not yeah. like a Lotus position kind of thing. It certainly can be. Yeah. Um, but really meditation is, is not just meant for the cushion. It's meant to punctuate your daily life. I mean, otherwise, you know, its utility is limited to this sacred time, you know, and I think where meditation is really the most useful or could be is, you know, as we're dealing with each other in the world of the 10,000 things. And so, you know, if you can develop the capacity, uh, develop the capacity to witness phenomenon arising and subsiding in consciousness moment to moment in a way that's completely transitory without assigning valence or salience to that particular phenomenon. So, and this starts probably in a way that's very quiet and meditative because you have to train yourself up for this, but there you are on the cushion, you know, or in a chair, most likely. And, um, and, you know, meditation is certainly not the cessation of thought. <laughs> That's a confusion. <laughs> You're sitting there and thoughts are arising, you know, and, um, and then you're, you're, you start to witness these thoughts instead of identify and fixate on them, identify with them or fixate on them. So you, you're like, oh, like, I'm now thinking about some picking up my daughter at dance class. You know, we'll window into my life here. Um, <laughs> and, oh, now I have a frustration associated with that because I really want to be doing something else. Oh, and then, you know, then the monkey mind takes over and you're just kind of swinging from branch to branch, right? But then all of a sudden you develop this capacity to just witness all of those thoughts kind of arise and subside and you just kind of see them and you don't assign any value to them and you don't assign any emotion to them and they just kind of come and go in the same way that you might be sitting there and you're listening to the hum of the refrigerator as a phenomenon arising in, in oral consciousness or, mm -hmm. you know, that you might, um, you know, close your eyes halfway and the world just becomes sort of a, a Matisse painting of, of light and shadow. And that light and shadow might be slightly vacillating. And that, that phenomenon is just sort of appearing and disappearing and taking shape and just pattern differently moment to moment. And that is to try the that. same. Yeah. It's, a, yeah, it's actually such nice. a, a beautiful meditation. In fact, it, it, it evokes a certain state of being, um, this kind of half eye, half closed eyed, um, kind of meditation where the world just becomes kind of shadow and light. And then you can turn that same signature of consciousness inward on the self mm. and the self begins to just become shadow and light. And, and, and there's a great truth that is revealed there 
this the illusion that there's some sort of locus of consciousness crouched behind our eyes as this um, as this uh, um, permanent uh, tiger, if you will. Um, yeah. that just kind of disappears, and you know you you come to a greater uh, comfort that there is no real stable self. Um, it's just changing and impermanent and fluctuating and vacillating um, moment to moment. And if you know, if you really spend enough time in this space doing this kind of quote unquote, like inner work, then when the cop car, go, you know, screams by or, you know, the, the optimized news headline comes across the ticker on the screen, you know, your response is kind of like, eh, you know, okay. Not in a way that is um, kind of passive or disengaged, but in a place with a certain degree of equanimity, you know, and a certain degree of non-attachment. And, you know, equanimity and, and non-attachment are these kind of terms that get kind of bandied about in Eastern religions and um, certainly in Taoism and whatnot. And there's also like a lot of confusion around that is that, you know, well, okay, equanimity and non-attachment, you know, that um, that's equivalent to sort of passivity. Well, no, although I would might argue that a certain amount of passivity in this day and age might be a darn good <laughs> behavior to adopt. Sure. Um, but it's not really passivity. It's just, you can bring your full ambitious self to any equation, but without connection and utter fixation on the results of that ambition. And, and again, that goes back to product versus process. It's yeah. like, you can bring your best self always to the equation, but just to the now, to the here, uh, to this moment and this one and this one, um, in, in a way that is, um, you know, doesn't really have, uh, and doesn't overvalue the kind of manifested product of it all. Um, and, and in so doing, you know, you really, um, you become very skillful at the present moment. And, and it's like, you're in the river, you know, you, there's no, there's no not being in it. There's no not being in the Tao. And so, you know, life can then become sort of a skillful navigation of being in the river. It's like, how do I apply the rudder just so to direct the energy? Or am I going to like swim upstream, you know, and, mm -hmm. and tire myself out? And, uh, you know, there's this great, um, um, like metaphor that Alan Watts uses often is like, you know, when you put a key in a locked door and it doesn't open right away, well, the best, you know, way for success is by like kind of jiggling the key so softly and skillfully such that the lock finally pops open because if you jam it and force it, you're going to break it. And so, yeah. So life becomes, you know, a, a training and sort of the skillful navigation of its river, of its current. And, um, 
And I, I think, you know, meditation and um, contemplation and the examined life and constantly asking questions um, can, can open a, a window into, um, into that skillfulness. Beautiful. Beautiful. There's so much to, um, to reflect on. And <laughs> there are so many different versions or, or options to the, the practice of meditation that you just described there that I feel like, I mean, I, for one, will, will be trying uh, kind of the half or the, the subtle gaze approach, which I yeah. can't wait to, to do. And yeah, and I think it just gives people options to, to find what works for them. But at the end of the day, we're all awarding ourselves with more self-awareness and just that luxury of even the micro pause, right? It's, it's wonderful. So then coming back to stoicism, when, when did it come up in, in your life? And I guess the second question, like there's, there's one thing to be leveraging and practicing different stoicism principles and so forth. There's another thing to, to go as far as, Hey, I need to do a 10 day course on this and bring <laughs> more of this to the world. I mean, I, obviously realize that you have the, the platform to make that possible and do a fantastic job to do so. But it's still, you know, it's still, um, you know, just like even for, for me, it's, oh yeah, I practice this stuff, but to write a book on it is a whole other uh, kettle of, uh, uh, of water, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say there are, there are experts on stoicism that have devoted their lives to the philosophy and, and the study of it. And so, and, and I don't consider myself one of them, but, uh, but I became very interested in it, um, through a relationship I had with a guy named Jules Evans, who's a British philosopher who has, uh, um, written quite a bit about stoicism. And I did an interview with him on the commune podcast, and, um, as part of that, you know, I did a lot of research on stoicism and I said, huh, this is really interesting. Um, you know, my, my introduction to it, um, as many people's introduction to stoicism is, is like this notion of being stoic, which is sort of, a kind of an unflappable, unemotional response <laughs> to yeah. stimuli. You know, my wife often calls me stoic because, uh, I seem to be unflappable in, you know, car cars full of screaming children. Or um, I give an example in the course where my my house actually got struck by lightning last year, and um, there was a, it sparked a fire, and uh, and we had to extinguish it prior to the arrival of the fire department. And you know, there was just, you know, it just didn't throw me for one reason or another. Um, and so, you know, but, but that kind of use of the word stoic is very misleading, um, because it kind of, uh, casts stoicism kind of in this unemotional light because stoicism is actually quite like dynamic and effusive kind of philosophy, um, cloaked in some techniques that can appear somewhat morbid and morose. <laughs> like yeah, I agree. Totally like, agree. Like memento mori, like the contemplation of your own death, for example. Um, but one of the things that I found interesting about Stoicism is that there was a tremendous overlap with Buddhism um, in terms... Now, I think like Stoicism 
is way more focused on ethics and virtue than Buddhism. Buddhism is a little more focused on wisdom. Uh, but on the other hand, wisdom is a core virtue of Stoicism. So I found, you know, I would say, categorize Buddhism as slightly more mystical and Stoicism, Stoicism is slightly more practical. Um, but they, mm. there was tremendous overlap in terms of um, the importance of the present moment, of living in accordance with nature, of like a rigorous study of the systems of nature, of concepts of like dependent origination or mutual interdependence that we all kind of live in this Buddha's idea of this Indra's net um, where we are all connected uh, in some ways. And there's a beautiful image of this um, kind of web that extends forever. And at every intersection, there is a bead of water which reflects every other bead. And that is kind of the picture of what it is like to be alive, that we're absolutely 100 percent mutually interdependent that you know we don't make our own oxygen and <laughs> um and uh that you know every action um propels uh another action often an opposite reaction just a newtonian physics notion but um so you know i, I was like oh well this is a th this is kind of a methodology stoicism that is, is a sort of methodology for many of like, you know, the practices of Buddhism that I was already very drawn to. And, um, and, uh, and so that was kind of my, you know, where I became, I'm sort of lit up by it. Yeah. And then, sense. um, and then it really forced me to didn't force me to do anything. I was super uh, intrigued <laughs> to, to do a, um, a, a deeper dive into virtue, into um, courage, moderation, justice, and wisdom, which are the four core virtues of Stoicism. And, you know, we kind of have sort of like a, you know, um, superficial sense of kind of what those things are but when you really begin to excavate the meaning of these things um it's you know in, in the kabbalah it's called reassembling the shattered mind of god you know which is such an amazing image but or, or trying to um you know in the allegory of the cave for example plato is like like look away from the shadow of things and directly towards the light to behold the ideal form of what something is. And mm. so that's what I was trying to do with notions of wisdom and notions of courage, um, or even love, you know, this has been a primary question I've asked myself for, um, you know, the last couple of years is like, what is capital L love and how do I live with more of that? <laughs> oh, and, writing that down. Um, and that has been a really fascinating interrogation. Um, and, uh, I could actually do a little bit of that if it's, and cause it's sort of, yeah. um, it sort of, uh, reflects, um, stoicism and its rigorous approach towards virtue. Um, yeah. so you know, I've been thinking about this in the light of uh, officiating my brother's wedding, which is coming up, um, and, you know, trying to um, 
assembled the shattered mind of God around love. Like what is true love, you know? And, um, and you know, we often think about love as re relational, you know, it's, it's easy for us to kind of, um, bracket it in the terms of human relationship, um, which often starts with sort of like the basest form. So this idea that like love is way up here in the sky, this kind of ideal love, and then it gets kind of shattered and refracted and modified till it hits sort of planet earth. And here we are kind of like with the shards of glass, which are just kind of this like little tiny clue of what love is, you know, and then we have to yeah. like reassemble this vase. <laughs> and, um, so it often starts with like, she's hot, you know, or whatever, yeah, something yeah. like completely corporeal and, um, and lustful and carnal, you know, and then it sort of progresses like, Oh, but you know, he also has a great personality. I really love his personality. <laughs> and then, and then there's sort of like you climb the rung of the ladder one more, and then it's like, well, it's and it's kind of conditional love, you know. Well, you know, I love you if you know you can fulfill these other requirements. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, and then you you kind of like, and then there's kind of a transactional love, which you know often comes later, you know, in, in marriage where it's like, okay, I've done the grocery shopping. You watch the kids. I'm going to work. You do this. You know, there's this kind of transaction that happens around love. And then there's quite a bit of love that is, um, is rests upon the, like thrusting the requirements of the ego onto somebody else. So it's like, oh, like I've worked so hard today and like I've given my all and like I want to come home and like be appreciated. And like I have a script for my partner and I've walked in the door and I'm downtrodden hero coming home, you know, <laughs> like yeah. bringing home the gold or whatever. And it's now it's like, okay, action, <laughs> you know, yeah. and in, yeah. in, in what you want is like, oh, how did you do it? You're such a brave archetype of a man to bring home <laughs> the family's, you know, cherished gold or whatever, you know, and and but that's of course not at all what happens. It's like you get home and it's like take the kids. I've been dealing with the fucking kids all day, you know, whatever. Yeah. And um, but I think through this process and through through you know a lot of inner work, um, you end up making yourself whole, mm -hmm. and you get to that place where you're really fulfilling your, your own needs. Um, and, and you're not thrusting the requirements of your ego onto anyone else. Uh, and this can apply not just to a, you know, a, like a, a spousal relationship. This could apply to a, you know, any kind of relationship where, you know, you don't need anyone to tell you that you're good enough. You don't need society you know, to approve of you based on what you have or what you do or the name played outside your office is that, that you are not in any way lonely with yourself. You don't need, um, 
you don't need approval through the eyes of others. Um, and you are completely whole. And in the, in the absence of need, love becomes something that is given and not taken. Mm. And, you know, Rumi has this wonderful poem um, about emotions visiting a house and, um, you know, jealousy walks in the door and envy and love and they could be invited guests and they could be uninvited guests and they spend their time and they leave. But you're the house, you know, and um, and there's emotions are just coming as phenomena like sound or like thoughts, you know, coming into your life and disappearing moment to moment. But I have begun to understand love, not really as an emotion, but as a state of being that it doesn't visit you as much as you visit it. Hmm. Except you don't need to go anywhere. It's not a state of being like, Wyoming is a state. <laughs> it's a state of being that you go to inside of yourself. Yeah. And, um, and the state of being has certain kinds of characteristics. And when you are there, you can recognize it. So the, um, <laughs> there is a Buddhist term called Brahma Vihara, which is, um, uh, in Sanskrit, it technically means um, the abodes of the Brahman, the Brahman being kind of the great ultimate source um, and Vihara being sort of abodes. But it's essentially the characteristics of oneness or of connection. And that would be okay. kind of how I would describe Brahma Vihara. And there's four characteristics to Brahma Vihara um, that to me, reflect the state of being that is love. So one is metta, which is loving kindness, which yep. is that without condition, you are bringing goodwill to everyone and everything in your ecosystem. So that's one. Karuna, which is um, often translated as compassion, but it's really the identification of someone else's suffering as your own. Okay. And the commitment to bring loving kindness in a way that alleviates that suffering. So that's big one right now. <laughs> Three is mudita which is joy for someone else's joy. Okay. So, I mean, really sit in that for a moment. When have you been completely joyful only because someone else is joyful? Mm. You probably caught my, my gaze when you, when you said that, because that's what I was thinking. I mean, that's a deep, deep thought there. If you're being honest with yourself. Yeah. Right. Wow. It, but this is the state of love. You know, yeah. this is the effusive, expansive state of love. 
this is not just something, some biochemical reaction in your body where you feel like a surge of oxytocin or serotonin or whatever. This is not that. It just kind of like comes and it goes, whatever. This is capital L love. And, and then the last one is the most curious one, really, which is upeka, which can best be translated as, as equanimity. And, you know, we, we touched on this before, you know, how is love equanimous? Well, that's a good question. Well, when you are embodying or inhabiting equanimity, essentially what you're doing is not being attached to any particular result. Again, you're not attached to product, only process. So the only thing you can do is be all there. And Full circle. The greatest gift that you can give anyone, the highest expression of love, is your undivided presence, your full attention. Because that's all we have ever had, and that's all we ever will. Wow. I feel like, I mean, I've got a million questions, but I feel like that is such a perfect way to actually wrap <laughs> this conversation or leave people with that thought. Because first of all, it, we, you went full circle from essentially the, the, op I, that's why I love that opening question without realizing it. Most times this happens in some capacity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a beautiful thing to experience because we're obviously not planning that. I mean, you know, I, I know that you weren't rehearsing an answer, on, <laughs> you know, who are yeah. you right now, for example. And it's just so beautiful to see it all come full circle to presence. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm going to end on that, Jeff. I sure, mean, we can do yeah. a part two, definitely uh, a yeah. million times and, and, and whatnot. But I would love to, I guess the last question is just, you know, what makes you smile each day? I like to end on, uh, on some gratitude. Yeah. I mean, doing this, honestly, it's like being in deep connection um, and just being all there with my friends, my colleagues, my family, you know, just being lit up in connection. Um, and, you know, that you know, to put sort of a, a bookend on my biography, you know, I grew up overseas and I was moving from kind of country to country, having to learn a different language every six to 12 months. I was also a very chubby kid and I suffered from a lot of self-esteem issues and all I wanted to do was fit in. And so I was willing to compromise my authentic self or do whatever I could, just be a shapeshifter, you know, be like water, just go to the, to the, to the open space. And, um, and it was really in, in a way my kryptonite, you know, that mm -hmm. um, I became sort of a people pleaser I became very invested in what other people thought of me. But often when people examine their shadows or their kryptonite, that 
transmutes also into their greatest strength. Because if I were to pull a thread through my entire life, it's that I've been absolutely dedicated consciously and subconsciously to connection and to fostering community because I know how important it is to belong. Yeah. And uh, so <laughs> it's become part of my operating system is just to find connection and to foster it, you know, wherever I go and wherever I can. And I think we're all doing that at some level. Um, but, uh, but it's just in stark relief in my own mm -hmm. life. Well, Jeff, thank you. Thank you for the, making the time and, and being present. And I, I felt your presence mm -hmm. through and through. And thank you for dedicating your energy and the team and everyone uh, part of your world and ecosystem to bring this kind of work to the world through. I mean, right now it shows up as as the commune platform and the podcast and everything in between. And, and who knows where that'll uh, morph as the years go. But in, in general, that you're, to borrow some of your language, the thread is of well-being and community and presence is there. And I think that's just a beautiful gift to um, bring to people. So thank you. Thank you for your dedication. Yeah. Thank you, Mark. I love being with you. I always feel like we bring out the best in each other. So I, I hope we can continue this. There's I wrote down all these other questions too. So I'd love another swing at it someday. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.